Chapter Eleven of the Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Gambler by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by C. J. Hogarth. Chapter Eleven. The chair, with the old lady beaming in it, was wheeled away towards the doors at the further end of the salon, while our party hastened to crowd around her and to offer her their congratulations. In fact, eccentric as was her conduct, it was also overshadowed by her triumph, with the result that the general no longer feared to be publicly compromised by being seen with such a strange woman. But, smiling in a condescending, cheerfully familiar way, as though he were soothing a child, he offered his greetings to the old lady. At the same time both he and the rest of the spectators were visibly impressed. Everywhere people kept pointing to the grandmother, and talking about her. Many people even walked beside her chair in order to view her the better, while, at a little distance, Astley was carrying on a conversation on the subject with two English acquaintances of his. De Griers was simply overflowing with smiles and compliments, and a number of fine ladies were staring at the grandmother as though she had been something curious. "'Quelle victoire!' exclaimed De Griers. "'Mais, madame, c'était du feu,' added Mademoiselle Blanche with an elusive smile. "'Yes, I have won twelve thousand florins,' replied the old lady. "'And then there is all this gold. With it the total ought to come to nearly thirteen thousand. How much is that in Russian money? Six thousand roubles, I think? However, I calculated that the sum would exceed seven thousand roubles, or, at the present rate of exchange, even eight thousand. Eight thousand roubles! What a splendid thing! And to think of you simpletons sitting there and doing nothing! Potapitch! Martha! See what I have won! How did you do it, madame? Martha exclaimed ecstatically. Eight thousand roubles! and I am going to give you fifty gulden apiece. There they are." Potapitch and Martha rushed towards her to kiss her hand. "'And to each bearer also I will give a ten gulden piece. Let them have it out of the gold, Alexis Ivanovitch. But why is this footman bowing to me and that other man as well? Are they congratulating me? Well, let them have ten gulden apiece. Madame la Princesse, un pauvre espatrie, malheur Continuelle. Les princes russes sont si généreux, said a man who for some time past had been hanging around the old lady's chair, a personage who, dressed in a shabby frock-coat and colored waistcoat, kept taking off his cap and smiling pathetically. "'Give him ten gulden,' said the grandmother. "'No, give him twenty. Now, enough of that, or I shall never get done with you all. Take a moment's rest, and then carry me away.' Praskovia, I mean to buy a new dress for you to-morrow. Yes, and for you too, Mademoiselle Blanche. Please translate, Praskovia. Merci, madame, replied Mademoiselle Blanche gratefully, as she twisted her face into the mocking smile which usually she kept only for the benefit of de Griers and the general. The latter looked confused and seemed greatly relieved when we reached the avenue. How surprised Theodosia will be! went on grandmother, thinking of the general's nursemaid. She, like yourselves, shall have the price of a new gown. Here, Alexis Ivanovitch, give that beggar something." A crooked-backed ragamuffin had approached to stare at us. "'But perhaps he is not a beggar, only a rascal,' I replied. "'Never mind, never mind, give him a gulden.' 
I approached the beggar in question, and handed him the coin. Looking at me in great astonishment, he silently accepted the gulden, while from his person there proceeded a strong smell of liquor. "'Have you never tried your luck, Alexis Ivanovitch?' "'No, madame. Yet just now I could see that you were burning to do so?' "'I do mean to try my luck presently.' then stake everything upon zero. You have seen how it ought to be done. How much capital do you possess? Two hundred gulden, madam. Not very much. See here. I will lend you five hundred if you wish. Take this purse of mine. With that she added sharply to the general, but you need not expect to receive any. This seemed to upset him, but he said nothing, and de Griers contented himself by scowling. Que diable! he whispered to the general, C'est une terrible vieille. Look, another beggar, another beggar, exclaimed the grandmother. Alexis Ivanovitch, go and give him a gulden. As she spoke, I saw approaching us a gray-headed old man with a wooden leg, a man who was dressed in a blue frock-coat and carrying a staff. He looked like an old soldier. As soon as I tendered him the coin, he fell back a step or two and eyed me threateningly. Was ist der Tuffel? he cried and appended thereto a round dozen of oaths. "'The man is a perfect fool!' exclaimed the grandmother, waving her hand. "'Move on now, for I am simply famished. When we have lunched, we will return to that place.' "'What?' cried I. "'You are going to play again?' "'What else do you suppose?' she retorted. "'Are you going only to sit here and grow sour and let me look at you?' "'Madame,' said de Griers confidentially, "'les chances pouvant une seule mauvaise chance, et vous perdrez tout, surtout avec votre jeu. C'était terrible. Oui, vous perdrez absolument, put in Mademoiselle Blanche. What has that got to do with you? retorted the old lady. It is not your money that I am going to lose, it is my own. And where is that Mr. Astley of yours? she added to myself. He stayed behind in the casino. What a pity! He is such a nice sort of man." Arriving home, and meeting the landlord on the staircase, the grandmother called him to her side, and boasted to him of her winnings, thereafter doing the same to Theodosia, and conferring upon her thirty gulden, after which she bid her serve luncheon. The meal over, Theodosia and Martha broke into a joint flood of ecstasy. I was watching you all the time, madame, quavered Martha, and I asked Potapitch what mistress was trying to do. And my word, the heaps and heaps of money that were lying upon the table! Never in my life have I seen so much money, and there were gentlefolk around it, and other gentlefolk sitting down. So I asked Potapitch where all these gentry had come from, for thought I maybe the Holy Mother of God will help our mistress among them. Yes, I prayed for you, madam and my heart died within me, so that I kept trembling and trembling. The Lord be with her, I thought to myself, and in answer to my prayer he has now sent you what he has done. Even yet I tremble. I tremble to think of it all. Alexis Ivanovitch, said the old lady, after luncheon, that is to say about four o'clock, get ready to go out with me again. But in the meanwhile, good-bye. Do not forget to call a doctor, for I must take the waters. Now go and get rested a little. I left the grandmother's presence in a state of bewilderment. Vainly I endeavored to imagine what would become of our party, or what turn the affair would next take. I could perceive that none of the party had yet recovered their presence of mind, least of all the general. 
the factor of the grandmother's appearance in place of the hourly expected telegram to announce her death, with, of course, resultant legacies, had so upset the whole scheme of intentions and projects that it was with a decided feeling of apprehension and growing paralysis that the conspirators viewed any future performances of the old lady at roulette. Yet this second factor was not quite so important as the first, since, though the grandmother had twice declared that she did not intend to give the general any money, that declaration was not a complete ground for the abandonment of hope. Certainly de Griers, who with the general was up to the neck in the affair, had not wholly lost courage. And I felt sure that Mademoiselle Blanche also, Mademoiselle Blanche, who was not only as deeply involved as the other two, but also expectant of becoming Madame General, and an important legatee, would not lightly surrender the position, but would use her every resource of coquetry upon the old lady, in order to afford a contrast to the impetuous Polina, who was difficult to understand, and lacked the art of pleasing. Yet now, when the grandmother had just performed an astonishing feat at roulette, now, when the old lady's personality had been so clearly and typically revealed as that of a rugged, arrogant woman, who was tombé en enfance, now, when everything appeared to be lost, why, now, the grandmother was as merry as a child which plays with thistle-down. Good Lord, I thought, with, may God forgive me, a most malicious smile, every ten gulden piece which the grandmother staked must have raised a blister on the general's heart and maddened de Griers, and driven Mademoiselle de Comuget almost to frenzy with the sight of this spoon dangling before her lips. Another factor is the circumstance that even when overjoyed at winning, the grandmother was distributing alms right and left, and taking every one to be a beggar. She again snapped out to the general that he was not going to be allowed any of her money, which meant that the old lady had quite made up her mind on the point, and was sure of it. Yes danger loomed ahead. All these thoughts passed through my mind during the few moments that, having left the old lady's rooms, I was ascending to my own room on the top story. What most struck me was the fact that, though I had divined the chief, the stoutest threads which united the various actors in the drama, I had until now been ignorant of the methods and secrets of the game. For Paulina had never been completely open with me although on occasions it had happened that involuntarily, as it were, she had revealed to me something of her heart, I had noticed that in most cases—in fact, nearly always—she had either laughed away these revelations, or grown confused, or purposely imparted to them a false guise. Yes, she must have concealed a great deal from me. But I had a presentiment that now the end of this strained and mysterious situation was approaching. Another stroke, and all would be finished and exposed. Of my own fortunes, interested though I was in the affair, I took no account. I was in the strange position of possessing but two hundred gulden, of being at a loose end, of lacking both a post, the means of subsistence, a shred of hope, and any plans for the future, yet of caring nothing for these things. Had not my mind been so full of Polina, I should have given myself up to the comical piquancy of the impending denouement, and laughed my fill at it. But the thought of Polina was torture to me. That her fate was settled I already had an inkling. Yet that was not the thought which was giving me so much uneasiness. What I really wished for was to penetrate her secrets. I wanted her to come to me and say, I love you, and if she would not so come, 
or if to hope that she would ever do so was an unthinkable absurdity, why, then there was nothing else for me to want. Even now I do not know what I am wanting. I feel like a man who has lost his way. I yearn but to be in her presence, and within the circle of her light and splendor, to be there now and forever, and for the whole of my life. More I do not know. How can I ever bring myself to leave her? On reaching the third story of the hotel I experienced a shock. I was just passing the general's suite when something caused me to look round. Out of a door about twenty paces away there was coming Polina. She hesitated for a moment on seeing me, and then beckoned me to her. "'Polina Alexandrovna! Hush! Not so loud!' "'Something startled me just now,' I whispered, "'and I looked round and saw you. Some electrical influence seems to emanate from your form.' "'Take this letter,' she went on with a frown. Probably she had not even heard my words, she was so preoccupied, and hand it personally to Mr. Astley. Go as quickly as ever you can, please. No answer will be required. He himself—she did not finish her sentence. "'To Mr. Astley?' I asked, in some astonishment. But she had vanished again. "'Aha! So the two were carrying on a correspondence. However, I set off to search for Astley first at his hotel and then at the casino, where I went the round of the salons in vain. At length, vexed and almost in despair, I was on my way home when I ran across him among a troop of English ladies and gentlemen who had been out for a ride. Beckoning to him to stop, I handed him the letter. We had barely time even to look at one another, but I suspected that it was of set purpose that he restarted his horse so quickly. Was jealousy then gnawing at me? At all events I felt exceedingly depressed, despite the fact that I had no desire to ascertain what the correspondence was about, to think that he should be her confidant. My friend, mine own familiar friend, passed through my mind. Yet was there any love in the matter? Of course not, reason whispered to me. But reason goes for little on such occasions. I felt that the matter must be cleared up, for it was becoming unpleasantly complex. I had scarcely set foot in the hotel when the commissionaire and the landlord, the latter issuing from his room for the purpose, alike informed me that I was being searched for high and low, that three separate messages to ascertain my whereabouts had come down from the general. When I entered his study I was feeling anything but kindly disposed. I found there the general himself, de Griers, and Mademoiselle Blanche, but not Mademoiselle's mother who was a person whom her reputed daughter used only for show purposes, since in all matters of business the daughter fended for herself, and it is unlikely that the mother knew anything about them. Some very heated discussion was in progress, and meanwhile the door of the study was open, an unprecedented circumstance. As I approached the portals I could hear loud voices raised, for mingled with the pert, venomous accents of de Griers were Mademoiselle Blanche's excited, impudently abusive tongue and the general's plaintive wail, as apparently he sought to justify himself in something. But on my appearance every one stopped speaking, and tried to put a better face upon matters. De Griers smoothed his hair, and twisted his angry face into a smile, into the mean, studiedly polite French smile which I so detested, while the downcast, perplexed general assumed an air of dignity, though only in a mechanical way. On the other hand, Mademoiselle Blanche did not trouble to conceal the wrath that was sparkling in her countenance, but bent her gaze upon me with an air of impatient expectancy. 
I may remark that hitherto she had treated me with absolute superciliousness, and so far from answering my salutations, had always ignored them. "'Alexis Ivanovitch,' began the general, in a tone of affectionate upbraiding, "'may I say to you that I find it strange, exceedingly strange, that—in short, your conduct towards myself and my family—in a word, your—er—extremely—eh, ce n'est pas ça,' interrupted de Griers in a tone of impatience and contempt. Evidently he was the ruling spirit of the conclave. "'Mon cher monsieur, notre général se trompe.' What he means to say is that he warns you, he begs of you most earnestly, not to ruin him. I use the expression because—why, why, I interjected, because you have taken upon yourself to act as guide to this—to this—how shall I express it—to this old lady, a set pauvre, terrible vieille. But she will only gamble away all that she has, gamble it away like thistledown. You yourself have seen her play. Once she has acquired the taste for gambling, she will never leave the roulette-table, but, of sheer perversity and temper, will stake her all, and lose it. In cases such as hers a gambler can never be torn away from the game. And then—and then—and then, asseverated the general, you will have ruined my whole family. I and my family are her heirs, for she has no nearer relatives than ourselves. I tell you frankly that my affairs are in great— very great disorder. How much they are so you yourself are partially aware. If she should lose a large sum, or maybe her whole fortune, what will become of us, of my children, here the general exchanged a glance with de Griers, or of me? Here he looked at Mademoiselle Blanche, who turned her head contemptuously away. Alexis Ivanovitch, I beg of you to save us. Tell me, General, how am I to do so? On what footing do I stand here? Refuse to take her about. Simply leave her alone. But she would soon find someone else to take my place. Cena passa, cena passa, again interrupted de Griers. Que diable! Do not leave her alone so much as advise her, persuade her, draw her away. In any case, do not let her gamble. Find her some counter-attraction. And how am I to do that? If only you would undertake the task, Monsieur de Griers, I said this last as innocently as possible, but at once saw a rapid glance of excited interrogation pass from Mademoiselle Blanche to de Griers, while in the face of the latter also there gleamed something which he could not repress. Well, at the present moment she would refuse to accept my services, said he, with a gesture, but if, later, here he gave Mademoiselle Blanche another glance, which was full of meaning, whereupon she advanced towards me with a bewitching smile, and seized and pressed my hands. Devil take it, but how that devilish visage of hers could change! At the present moment it was a visage full of supplication, and as gentle in its expression as that of a smiling roguish infant. Stealthily she drew me apart from the rest, as though the more completely to separate me from them. and though no harm came of her doing so, for it was merely a stupid manoeuvre, and no more, I found the situation very unpleasant. The general hastened to lend her his support. "'Alexis Ivanovitch,' he began, "'pray pardon me for having said what I did just now, for having said more than I meant to do. I beg and beseech you, I kiss the hem of your garment, as our Russian saying has it, 
for you and only you can save us i and mademoiselle de comuget we all of us beg of you but you understand do you not surely you understand and with his eyes he indicated mademoiselle blanche truly he was cutting a pitiful figure at this moment three low respectful knocks sounded at the door which on being opened revealed a chambermaid with potapitch behind her come from the grandmother to request that i should attend her in her rooms she is in a bad humor added potapitch the time was half past three my mistress was unable to sleep explained potapitch so after tossing about for a while she suddenly rose called for her chair and sent me to look for you she is now in the veranda quelle mesure exclaimed de Grier. true enough i found madame in the hotel veranda much put about at my delay for she had been unable to contain herself until four o'clock lift me up she cried to the bearers and once more we set out for the roulette salons End of chapter 11 Recording by Bill Borst